that comes up with being forgotten. Now, my parents came back, y'all. It was all good. Like, it's not like they abandoned me or anything. But, uh, but one of these feelings that comes up with, with being, like, forgotten is a sense of panic. The sense of uh, somebody's left us, some, somebody's maybe abandoned us. And, and maybe somebody, some of you have experienced that before. The idea of abandonment, the idea of somebody leaving you behind. So you, you think in your head, well, there must be something that's more important than me in this circumstance. Uh, maybe some of you think, um, you, you know, maybe, so with me, it's like high school friends. High school friends, you remember that time in high school when you were getting ready to graduate and you told all your friends, oh, we're going to stay in touch and we're going to stay together and we'll never forget about each other and we're going to keep reinforcing that. And then like a month goes by and you haven't talked to them. And then like two years go by and you haven't talked to them. I can think of like people I've had that conversation with who yeah, I've, I've just kind of forgotten. And they also, they've just kind of forgotten me, right? You talk about these things, you make these commitments, but... There's, and then, then along with that is like as you lose those relationships, there's this kind of this long, slow grief that takes place as, as those relationships start to disappear. So that's, that's a feeling that comes along with being forgotten. Maybe it's just disappointment. Maybe you have a certain set of expectations for how people are going to consider you, the kind of things that people are going to do for you, and then when people don't follow through on those expectations, you feel forgotten, and disappointment comes along with that. Maybe, maybe it's a sense of despair. The sense that I've got no one with me. Everybody has forgotten me. There are, there are all of these emotions that can come along with feeling forgotten. And, and sometimes we can carry that feeling with us into our relationship with God. So those feelings that come up with being forgotten, we can actually carry those ideas with us into our relationship with God. So maybe certain expectations, we were just talking about that this morning, maybe certain expectations that we might have of God and what God would do for us, maybe they're not being met. Maybe, uh, maybe over time, we felt like God has just drifted away from us, that he's not involved with us. Maybe, maybe there's even a certain situation in your life that's causing a certain level of panic and in our loss of control and our sense that we don't have any control over the situation, we get this sense that maybe God doesn't have control either. Like, I don't know what it is, but all of these emotions cause us to think all of these things with God, so we carry these ideas of feeling forgotten into our relationship with God, and feeling forgotten is a really vulnerable place for us to be. So, uh, so over the next three weeks, we're gonna look at God's people as they are in the midst of this very vulnerable place, and we're going to look at how the world around them responds to the vulnerability because they respond a certain way. We're going to look at how God's people respond to the vulnerability. And then we're also going to see how God himself responds to their vulnerability. Who God is in the midst of these feelings of being forgotten. So we're in Exodus chapter 1. And uh, before we actually like start digging into the Old Testament, there is like this resident question that was actually inside of me as a teenager. And that question was this, why in the world would I read the history of some country that existed 2,000 years ago and does exist today, but like why would I be invested in this? Why would I care about the things that are said here? Uh, you know, and so some com complaints from even Christians as we talk about the Old Testament and the things that we read in the Old Testament are like, you know, the Old Testament, it's just, it's just not really, like it's not practical. 
you know what I really want for my faith journey is I want something practical and something that's helpful, and I don't feel like the Old Testament is always necessarily practical and helpful, not like the epistles are. The epistles are so practical. So that's one complaint from Christians. Another, another is uh, uh, about the Old Testament is this. It's, it's kind of hard to connect to the Old Testament. It's just kind of like stating facts about history. and It's not like the Psalms. Like, I can really connect to the Psalms. I could read the Psalms all day because they speak of these emotions and these things that are going on inside of me, but it's hard to connect to the, to the Old Testament. And so maybe, uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's just hard to understand. Like, when things are written in the New Testament, it's really easy to understand sometimes. Sometimes it's really easy to understand, but then Old Testament is a lot harder to understand. So maybe that's a challenge for you uh, maybe, maybe it's this, maybe you're just saying, hey, that was just a long time ago. All of that stuff just happened a long time ago, and so it's really hard to see how it's relevant to my life right now. You could have any host of complaints about the Old Testament, and so I do want to address this question, why would I read about Israel's history? Why would I do that? Because this was how 15-year-old Alex thought. It's like, why why would I read any of this stuff? Why would I engage with it if it's so far separated from me? And, and if I could go back and talk to 15-year-old Alex, this is what I would say. I would say, hey, you know, I hear you. I understand your complaints. I see where you're coming from. But these complaints, they're short-sighted. They're very short-sighted. They're, they're missing the bigger picture. So let's talk about the bigger picture. Number one is this. If you are a Jesus follower, this is your history. So if you've come, into, come to trust in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus and, and you, know, you have uh, decided, you know, I'm going to commit my life to Jesus because of what he has accomplished for me in his cross, then guess what? All of this stuff is your history. This is your history because you know what? You have been grafted into a new family. You've been grafted into a new family and now you are a part of God's people. And so now you get to look at the ways that God has worked throughout history. So that's number one. Number two, practical and helpful is shown rather than told. So, so people talk about the Old Testament, and they're like, hey, it's not really practical and helpful. And I wanna tell you, actually, like the Old Testament is very practical and helpful, but the way that it is practical and helpful is, is in revealing to us certain things rather than just kind of telling us what to do. So instead of saying, do this and don't do this, now we do get some of that, we get the Ten Commandments and that kind of stuff, but instead of saying, do this and don't do this, what the Old Testament really does is it, it gives us stories that are intended to reveal certain principles. But I wanna, I, I wanna make that point just to say practical and helpful still exists in the Old Testament, but it's revealed to us through stories. Number three, it's a story of the God who wants to be with us. Israel's history is a story about the God who wants to be with us with us. That you look at the, the whole span of scripture back in the beginning, Adam and Eve sinned, that corruption entered into creation, and, and humanity is now separated from God. We have separated ourselves from God. That's the idea that we're given. And the idea that the Old Testament gives us, that's the story that it tells, is this progressive thing that God does, this story that builds, that shows us and reveals to us that he actually desires to be with people who told him that they didn't want him around. But God still pursues people. And that's the whole story of the Old Testament, is God pursuing people to be with them. And so this is a, this is a place where we get to see every piece of the story that we look at through the Old Testament. We get to see a different way of how God is pursuing his people so that he can be with us. Number four, there are truths 
about God, I don't care where your level of spiritual maturity at, is at, there are truths about God that you have yet to grasp. There are truths about God that I have yet to grasp. And every time I read the Old Testament, I could have read the same passage 15 times, but there's something about the next time that I read that passage, it reveals to me something about God that I haven't seen before. And so you know what? There are truths about God that you have yet to grasp. So these are all reasons why we would read Israel's history. So, so Egypt, or sorry, Exodus, it puts us right in the middle of Israel's history. It's the second book of what is called the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. It's also called the Pentateuch. So penta means five. Torah is the first five books of the Bible, and it's written by Moses. That's what we need to understand. And so I'll talk about, hey, what Moses is trying to tell us here or what the author is trying to tell us here so that we can kind of understand, hey, the person who's writing this has an intention with the, the words that he's writing down. And so, so broad purpose of the Torah, I want to talk about this, is Uh, he's trying to help, Moses is trying to help the Israelites really grasp three things. The people of Israel, this is what he wants them to grasp. So the Torah reveals to God's people, number one, who God is. So if God, this is how, how fallen, how broken we are once corruption entered creation, this is the problem that we have. If God does not reveal himself to us, we will not be able to discover him. This is why we even have God's word. God's word reveals to us who God is. And so the Torah reveals to the Israelites, specifically the people of Israel, who their God is. Number two, it tells them what God has done for them. All all of the stories throughout the Old Testament, these amazing things that God was accomplishing for his people. And number three, it reveals to God's people who they are supposed to be as a chosen people. So, so God is going to stick the, the, the people of Israel in the middle of all of these nations who are worshiping all of these false gods. And their goal, what God wants them to do, is to reveal to all of those nations who he is. He wants the Israelites to reveal to all the people all around them, to, to the whole world, the kind of God that they're following, the kind of God that has their back. So who are they supposed to be as chosen, God's chosen people? So then Genesis, Genesis. So we, we have to kind of get some context here for Exodus. What, uh, so we go back to Genesis. This is what happened in Genesis. God created everything. God made everything. And everything reflected God's glory and goodness. It reflected his character. But then the fall came, which the fall was, you know, the, the, the serpent came into the garden, deceived Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve sinned. And then death and separation from God was the penalty that, that God gave. And so that's what happened in the garden. But, and there's a, there's a big but in the story. This is important. God made a promise of a future Savior who was going to come right there in the garden. Genesis 3.15. I will, he's talking to the serpent here. God's talking to the serpent, and this is what he tells him. He says, hey, I'm going to put enmity. I'm going to make you enemies of a certain person between you and the woman. I'm going to put this kind of contention between the two of you, and I'm going to put contention between your offspring and her offspring, and this is what's going to happen. That offspring that I'm talking about, he's going to bruise your head, serpent. He's going to step on you. He's going to crush you. You who introduced corruption into creation, he is going to do away with you. You father of lies, he is going to crush you. And you know what you're going to do to him? You're just going to kind of bruise his heel. You're just gonna, so this was the promise. God was not content 
to see sin, Satan, and death rule over his good creation. And so he gave this promise that he would defeat sin, Satan, and death and restore his relationship with humanity. So this ultimately, this promise right here, this is ultimately a promise about Jesus. So, so from there, what happens is that the Torah, it lays the foundation of concepts like a blood sacrifice, like atonement for sin, like the law, the Ten Commandments, like a sacrificial lamb, like God working to protect his people from death. All of these ideas are present in the Torah, and they're all pieces of a plan that would ultimately find its completion in Jesus. Every single piece of the story. So the Torah, what it does is it provides all the tools to reveal a problem that is only solved by Jesus. It provides all of the tools to reveal a problem that is only solved by Jesus. And so, so in Genesis 12, I want to introduce us to the next step of that plan, what God was going to do. So, so step one of that plan is God was going to make a nation for himself. God was going to make a people that eventually this savior of the world, this Messiah was going to come through this people. And then, so Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says this. God gives a promise. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just one family through a particular line, but I'm gonna bring about that savior who is going to restore my relationship with humanity and in you, through you, through your line, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God speaks to this guy who's a pagan, has never met him before, Abraham. He's sitting in this pagan nation. God comes to him and this is what he says. He says, hey, I wanna give you a promise. I'm gonna make you a great nation, just follow me. And so Abraham follows him. Abraham follows him. And so, so I wanna look at God's promise to Abraham. This is what God's promise was. God's promise was kids, land, and blessing. He says, I'm gonna give you a lot of kids. Now that was a problem because Sarah was very old. You know that story, Sarah was very old. She couldn't have kids, but God tells Abraham, hey, guess what? I'm gonna give you a lot of kids. I'm gonna take you in a, to a special land that I have prepared for you. And you, I'm going to bless you. What that blessing is, is just a sign of God's favor. My favor will be upon you. Those are three promises, and those are important as we look at Exodus. Three promises, kids, land, and blessing. So, so now, fast forward all the way through Genesis, all the way up to chapter 50. The rest of Genesis is about God carrying out this promise that he made to Abraham. So then we look at Abraham has this son, his name is Isaac, and then Abraham has grandkids, and specifically we look at Jacob, his grandson, Israel is his name, that's the name that God gives to him. He makes Abraham then into a great nation from that point, and then he's working to bring them into this fruitful land that he's promised them. This is, this is kind of the promise. And so Exodus 1 picks up on this story of how God was carrying out the promise. So Exodus 1, 1 through 5, these are the names of the son of Israel, that's Jacob, who came to Egypt uh, with Jacob, or sorry, these are the stories of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. So get this, three generations after Abraham. Abraham had 
Abraham had two sons, but the, 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 the line that we're following is through the one son, I, or Isaac. We're following the line through the one son, Isaac. And in three generations after Abraham, you have 70 descendants. 70 descendants existing here. So, so the point that, that Moses is trying to make when he's writing us, when he's just kind of reminding us how many there are, is, is this. Hey, God was keeping his promise even when it seemed impossible. So, so when Sarah was barren, when Sarah couldn't have kids, God showed up and kept his promise. And then, and then even when uh, you know, God wants to reveal something about himself and he takes, uh, tells Abraham to take Isaac up to the mountain and, so that he can sacrifice him, but then in that moment he reveals the, the sacrificial goat and now uh, Abraham doesn't have to kill Isaac, he can kill the goat instead. You know, all of these times God is showing them, hey, I'm preserving my promise. Every step of the way through Genesis, he's preserving the promise over and over and over again and so God was keeping his promise even when it seemed impossible there was this point in the story that we're going to talk about just a second famine could have wiped out God's people famine could have wiped out God's people but then God keeps his promise to his people the principle is this so when you're in the middle of hard things when you're in the middle of a lot of difficulty it is really challenging to see God at work. It's really challenging to believe that God is actually working. But I, I wanna stop like you in the middle of this difficulty and I just wanna tell you, look back on 10 years of your life. You know, back then, 10 years ago, it might have been difficult to see that God was really at work in your life. But now that you look back, you can see God was actually up to something in the middle of all that. Like I could tell you, you know, I was, I was in the middle of a time that a church that I was serving at, it closed down. We decided, like, the, the, and, and one day I found out that the church was closing down. The pastor comes up, lets me know, he's, lets us know he's resigning, and then, like, the next day we're done. The church is no more. And I looked at that situation, and I was like, what in the, what in the world are you doing, Lord? And now, like, ten years away, separated from that moment, I can look back and I can actually tell you, like, God took that building, gave it to another church that is now saving, like baptizing hundreds of people today in that community. So God's using that church, but I also look at like what he used in me. He actually planted me in another church that got me connected to resources, got me started on an internship that he was gonna use to build into me, to develop me into a pastor. So like I can look and I could go, okay God, what are you doing? How could you let this happen? But then actually, like 10 years separated, I look at all the pieces that God was moving around to accomplish his purposes. And that's what Moses is doing right now because God's people, he's getting ready to tell us about a hard situation that they're in. But God, you know, God keeps his promises. He's, remember, he's reminding them, hey, God keeps his promises. God, God is going to keep his promises even when it seems impossible. God is keeping his promises. So the, the passage continues to display that idea as it goes on. So uh, verse five says, Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. So just to rehash the Joseph story, uh, you know, God, God reveals to Joseph that his brothers are going to serve him. And, uh, and so then Joseph tells his brothers this and Joseph's brothers don't love that very much, and so what they decide to do is they send him uh, away. They, were, they actually like, thought he was dead, and then they sold him off to some slave owners. And then, uh, so there's just like a number of different details in the story that, that send Joseph into a situation that's not very good, and God shows his faithfulness to Joseph the whole way, and, uh, and eventually Joseph, through just trusting God, ends up 
to be like the second in command in Pharaoh's kingdom. In Egypt, he's the second in command and he has this plan where he is going to to bless people by by, uh, protecting the land from famine. And so, you know, uh, Jacob, Joseph's father, his sons, they they come along, they don't have any resources, they don't have anything that they can do in the midst of famine, and so they show up at Joseph's door, the second in command to Pharaoh in Egypt, and, and, and when they show up, Joseph is able to like protect them from the famine, to actually give them a place. They, 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 develop, they find a place called Goshen in the land of Egypt, and, and they get their own space, and they're protected from the famine, and, and God shows his blessing to his people. So, so God kept his promise in a major way to his people. And on top of that, not just that they get the protection from famine, but now they have influence with a major world power. So all of that is happening, and then verse 7 says this. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So here, the promise, Moses is pushing the promise to the forefront, and this is basically what he's saying. He's saying, hey, you know what? Israel, the people of Israel, they multiplied like rabbits in that place. Like, they grew exceedingly. Joseph's kids, and and their kids had kids, and then their kids had kids, and it was a season of prosperity, a season of comfort. The writer just actually, like, leaves us in awe at the fact that God kept fulfilling his promises all the way along. To make the descendants of Israel like the sand, like what the the promises, some of the promises were like, they'll be like the sand of the seashore. They'll be like the stars in the sky. That's how many of them there will be. And so God's keeping this promise. But there are still two unanswered questions about the promise. Remember, the the promise was not just about kids, but it was about land and blessing. So, So what about the land? Because that's not here. They're outside of the land. And then what about the blessing? Because in a moment, we're, we're about to see how things get very dark for God's people. So think with me. I just push pause for a second. I want you to think with me about how Exodus could have opened. Because it opens by telling us that God was keeping his promise, by making the point that God was keeping his promise. I want you to think about how it could have opened because it could have opened with slavery. It could have, Moses could have chose to talk about the dire situation of God's people, but instead what he does first is he draws our attention to the fact that God was keeping his promise. He could have opened and let us know that they weren't in the land that they were supposed to be in. It could have opened and let us know that they were not experiencing God's blessing. It could have opened and let us know that they were forgotten by God, but instead what it let us know, it fixes our attention on the fact that God was keeping his promise, that God was still at work in the middle of all of this. And so I just want to ask you, like, if you're in the middle of hard circumstances, if you're in the middle of challenge, you know, I, this church over the last month and a half, the, the level of challenge that we have experienced on an individual basis, on a personal basis, the things that have come our way, it's going to be really, like, if that's the first thing that we talked about, like, that's, it's going to be really tempting to think that maybe God has forgotten us. But I want to ask, before you think about that, how has God forgotten you? I want to ask, how has God been faithful to you? I want you to start with how God has been faithful to you. 
In fact, like that's why I'm so thankful for Debbie standing up here several weeks, like week after week, saying, hey, we need to count the blessings that God has given to us. We need to make sure to evaluate and see like the good ways that he has shown up because if we miss that, we're gonna fail, like we're gonna wonder if he's actually up to anything in the middle of the hard stuff that we go through. And so we need, to, we need to count our blessings. We need to be aware. Don't for one second lose sight of God's faithfulness, even when you're going through the hard things. Okay, that's crucial because the story starts to get really dark from here. Exodus 1.8 says this, Now there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So uh, Egyptian pharaohs, this is what they would do. They loved to rewrite history and put themselves at the center of the universe. In fact, you would see them, they would inscribe their names on, uh, on different buildings and different monuments that they would put up. And then the next pharaoh would come along and kind of scrape off that name and he would put his name there because he wanted to be seen as most important. And so it was, it was actually a really common pattern for Egyptian rulers to, to do away with all the good things that the previous ruler did. And, I, and there's a principle here. It's this, that those with power actually can reshape the retelling of history or can shape the retelling of history in ways that are convenient for them. Those with power have the ability to shape history and retell it in ways that are convenient for them. And so, so that you know what? There's no way that the Hebrew people would have forgotten about Joseph. They would have remembered Joseph. It would have been in the stories that they told each other. Even over the course of 400 years, they would have remembered. This would be like for us, uh, George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr., like any of these major influential people throughout our nation's history. And, and what's happened? Like it would, it would be like somebody coming along and saying, like, yeah, like that person wasn't real. That person didn't do any good things. Uh, that person wasn't influential. It would be like somebody coming along, and, and like, a, like a foreign dictator c- coming into our country and then completely rewriting history. That's, that's kind of what's happening here. So, you know what? Egypt, Egypt wouldn't have its success, its power, or its influence without the, the work of Joseph. Like, the, 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 Joseph protected the Egyptians from this famine that came against them. Joseph actually like worked to, to, to keep the nation moving, that they became a center point for the whole world around them, that countries from all around were coming to Joseph and coming to Egypt to get the resources that they needed to last through the famine. But you know what, Pharaoh, he decides that he's gonna ignore the work that Joseph did. And that choice, that choice for him to ignore that work would have massive implications for God's people. So, so real quick, to, just to understand What's going on here? Part, part of Moses' goal is to show us who Egypt is, the kind of people that Egypt is, the kind of person that Pharaoh is, what, the kind of things that they do, that they kind of rewrite history, they do things for themselves because these are real events that took place and we absolutely believe that, that these are real events that took place but, but at the same time, part of the goal too is to show us what the world is like when it's infected with sin and infected with corruption, the kinds of things that the world does. And so part of, like, part of what Moses is saying is, hey, this is what happened in Egypt, but hey, this is how the world works, so don't be surprised when these things start to happen. Don't be surprised when people start to abuse their authority. Don't be surprised when people start rewriting history in a way that is convenient for them. 
So verse nine says this. He said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So, so now that he's rewritten history, he's now looking at these people, and he is afraid of what they might do. You see where it says escape from the land there at the end? What he's actually saying is, is he's saying, lest they overtake the land. Like sometimes you read things in scripture and I'm like, that doesn't seem to fit because in all of those other places, he's worried that they'll do something. Like if they escape, that would actually probably be good for Pharaoh. Why is he afraid of that? And, and what we need to, uh, what's going on there is that if you look back, you just look at the language, what's happening is that he's saying they overtake. It's like an idiom. There are, there are ways that people said things in Hebrew that actually mean something else when they get translated to English. So, so we should see it as he's afraid that they're actually gonna overtake the land. He's afraid that they're going to come against them, that they're actually going to win, that they're going to take something from them. And so what's happening is that fear is causing Pharaoh to react to these Hebrew people before they've actually done anything wrong, before they've shown themselves to be a threat. And so this, this fear would eventually morph into to racism in Egypt. Instead of people, you know, being blessed and being a blessing in this place, like what they would discover is that Egypt was going to start to, to, um, to view them as a problem uh, instead of seeing them as a blessing. They were going to start to manage them instead of trying to include them and make, a part of what, make them a part of what was going on. So verse 11 says this. It says, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. So, the Hebrew people are now they have people set over them. The, the answer for Pharaoh to this question of fear was that he was gonna do this large-scale ethnic oppression of the Hebrew people. He was gonna make them work. He put Egyptians in charge of them who will keep them working and make sure that all these people exist for is to serve us. So at about, the, at about this point in the story, every reader of this story should be going, whoa, wait a minute. I thought God had made a promise to these people. I thought God was actually gonna bring blessing to these people. Could you imagine being the people of Israel? Then like in one day, your whole reality changes. You uh, go from being comfortable, from being prosperous, to being a slave, a servant, a victim, an oppressed person. Would it be easy in that moment to trust that God is still up to something. How challenging would it be? Because I want you to see there's actually a hint in the passage that lets us know we should believe that God is still up to something. Verse 11, it says to afflict them. That word afflict comes from, the, it's the Hebrew word ana. Ana means to be afflicted, disturbed, or oppressed. Ana has been used in a promise of God to Abraham. The word anah has been used in a promise of God to Abraham. Genesis 15, 13 through 16 says this. The Lord said to Abraham, know for certain, this is part of God's promise to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They'll be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
So, so this word, when, when Moses uses this word in Exodus, what he's drawing our attention to is the promise that he gave Abraham. Part of that promise was, hey, just so you know, there is going to be a period of time that's going to be really hard for your people. It's going to be 400 years of affliction that they're going to have to go through. And then verse 14 says this, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That, hey, it's gonna be really hard for your people, but on the back side of this, on the other end of it, it's actually, they're gonna come out prosperous. They're gonna come out ahead. But the implication is this, because the, the suffering that they're experiencing, yeah, it was a part of the promise that God gave Abraham, but you know what? The, like, there are gonna be people in the middle of that 400-year period who are born into slavery and die in slavery, and how in the world something needs to be consistent for them to believe that God is still up to something in the midst of all of this. So Moses, he, he's telling this story to teach these wandering Israelites and, and also us a few lessons. So this is what he's trying to teach us. He's trying to teach us, hey, you know what? You may not live to see the promises of God come to fruition, but they're coming. That's what he's teaching his people. God is going to keep his promises. You may not actually see it with your eyes, but the promises of God are coming because he's been so faithful up to this point in keeping his promises. The second thing he's trying to teach them is this. You know what? Suffering is inevitable because of sin. Sin has infected and corrupted the world, and as a result, people face suffering. People oppress other people. People go through challenge and difficulty. The third thing is this. Comfort cannot imprint truth on the heart in the same way that suffering can. There's something about suffering that has an amazing ability to imprint truth on our hearts. Suffering has the power to reveal God in ways that we would have missed if we were in comfort. Verse 15 of this promise that God is giving to Abraham. Verse 15 says this, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. They shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So, okay, so there are multiple problems on the table. Number one, God's people are suffering when God said, you will have my favor upon you. Number two, they're not in their land. Number three, they have been waiting for a really, really long time to see God come through on these promises. So you might ask the question, okay, why wouldn't God just bring them into their land? Like, why do they have to go through 430 years of oppression and suffering? Firstly, the land was not ready for God's people. God wants to bring his people into the land, but, but the land was not ready for them because God is just. And God was not going to remove these people called the Amorites out of the land until their wickedness had met its fullness. And the other thing is God is patient. God, God was waiting every chance to give these Amorites the chance, the opportunity to repent, but they didn't repent. And so... These 430 years are, are awaiting people to see what's going to happen with these people called the Amorites. Because he doesn't just want to send his people into the land and kick them out, and, but he's just. The second thing is this, God's people weren't ready for the land. So you know what, these people, this nation of Israel, they needed to be able to reveal to the surrounding nations who their God is. And 
part of like the only way that they were going to be able to do that is they had to experience the suffering and the sickness and the corruption and the brokenness of the world around them so that when God shows up and saves them, they will be able to tell the nations exactly who their God is and exactly what he has done for them. So the point is this, when they were tempted to think that they had been forgotten, God was up to something. Even through all 430 years, they were tempted to think God had forgotten them, but he was actually up to something. So verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So you know what? If oppression was increasing against the Hebrew people, we would not expect this to happen in the story. We would, we would, in fact, expect to see like, things decrease, then become depressed, then, start, uh, then, then kind of stay insular. But, but what happens is that the more that the oppression goes up, the more that they're made slaves, the more that they are uh, oppressed, God keeps his promises, and the, the nation keeps expanding in the midst of it. It expands even faster as oppression goes up. God keeps his promises even when it seems impossible tell you what it seems impossible for the Israelites to see this whole all of these promises come through but God is showing his people hey I'm still keeping my promise so verses 13 and 14 they provide the Egyptian response to this the Egyptians think that they're going to squash this or stop it so verse 13 they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and all their work. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Uh, so I just want you to imagine that all the highlighted words up there uh, are some version of work because in the Hebrew language, that's what's happening. They're all some version of work. So, so listen to this again. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as workers and made their lives bitter with hard work and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as workers. So one of the, just one thing to clue into as, as you read uh, any kind of narrative, but particularly Hebrew narrative, is repetition is really important. They're trying to, the, the writer is trying to reveal to us something when they're repeating something so often. And work Work, the idea of work, the idea of hardness of labor, bitterness of the world, it's constantly repeated, which means that Moses, he doesn't want us to miss the intensity of the reality that the Israelites are experiencing in the midst of this. Things are very difficult for them. It is incredibly bitter. The work was relentless. It was unending. We could be led to think that they had no days off, that the, from sunup to sundown every single day, it was a bitter experience and that this sinful nation was creating suffering for God's people. So here's the question that they had to answer. God's people, as they're in the middle of this situation, and here's the question that we have to answer. When you are in suffering, will you believe that God is still up to something? When you are in suffering, will you believe that God is still up to something? You know, it's really easy to get overwhelmed by our circumstances to begin to think that maybe God isn't like somehow following through. You know, God loved the Israelites. He still allowed them to endure the bitterness of Egypt. God loves us and he still allows us to endure the pain of this world. So I have a few questions. Are you willing to accept whatever pain God allows to come along with following him? 
Will you strive to love him in the middle of it? Will you still believe that he loves you even as you deal with the pain? Will you still trust that he is actually working all things out together for your good, if not here, then in glory? You know what, the Israelites, they're, they're in a reality where it's really easily easy to doubt that the promises of God are being kept. But the truth this morning is, is that God keeps his promises even at times that it seems impossible. Okay, so what? So what? I've talked for a while. So what are we going to walk away with? Number one, learn, reflect on, remember, and trust God's unshakable promises. In fact, if all you did, if all the Bible reading you did for the next month was just to understand what are God's promises towards Christians, just to dig into God's promises, that would be really, really helpful for you because then you would be convinced that God is actually going to carry through on these things. You know what? So what are those promises? If you're a Christian, one of those promises is you're a part of God's people, which means that no matter how we feel, God has not forgotten us. So think of the, 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 the Israelites in Egypt. 375 years that they're going through this oppression right before Moses comes on the scene. But the last generation that would see God show up in a major way. Imagine that last generation is there, they're, they're waiting. Imagine what they're going through. Imagine them waiting to see God and then Moses shows up and it confirms for them, God keeps his promises. And this is what God does for his people. So here's some of the promises for Christians. You know what? God's with you. That's one of the promises that we always get to hold on to. Wherever you are, God's with you. Whatever you're in the middle of, God's with you. He's given you his Holy Spirit. His presence is there with you in that moment. He is available for you to talk to and have a conversation with and share your experience with. He is with you in the middle of it. What's another promise? God is actually gonna give you all the tools that you need to be faithful to whatever it is he's calling you to do. That's one of the promises that we have. We know that whatever situation God puts in front of us, whatever situation God is calling us into, he's not gonna put us in a situation without himself providing everything that we need to make it through that situation, not just make it through, but to be faithful to him in the middle of that situation. That's another promise. Another promise is this. God is working everything together for your good. That's one of the promises Christians get to hold on to. There's another promise. Jesus makes you clean and pure before the Father. You may have a sinful heart. You may have wickedness inside of you. You may have done things this week that you regret, but here's, here's a promise available to you. As long as you are following Jesus and you're trusting Jesus, in the middle of trusting Jesus, God looks at you and he looks at you as clean and pure and holy. Here's another promise. When you don't have the words to pray, when you don't have the words to speak, when you can't even understand your situation, one of the promises that Christians have is that the Holy Spirit for you is interceding and praying the words that you don't know how to pray in the middle of the difficulty of your situation. Final promise. There is a day when Jesus' victory over sin, Satan, and death will actually be revealed. And he will have victory over the whole world. He'll, he'll have victory over everything. And he will show us that he is faithful to keep his promises. So those are some of God's unshakable promises. Number two is this. 
God's plan is always to point us to Jesus. So every piece of Exodus, what it does is it sets the stage for Jesus to come nearly 1,200 years later. So God was preparing his people for the Savior that he would send. He would show them, you know, what a Savior looks like in rescuing them from Egypt. So so God was going to save his people out of Egypt, but he was actually, like, he was preparing them for the Savior that would come to save them from sin. So in, in what felt like God forgetting them, he was actually laying the groundwork for Jesus to come on the scene. And you know what? It's no different for us. In the times that we feel God has forgotten us, what he actually wants to do is to draw our attention to Jesus. Because Jesus is the culmination of all of God's plans, everything that God was doing. And he has proved to us that God is a God who keeps his promises. So, the encouragement this morning is this. As we go through suffering, as we go through difficulty, we can trust that God is actually up to something because he sent Jesus so let your suffering fix your eyes on Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I know that um, there are just a number of challenging circumstances that we're facing. And Lord, you never told us that challenging circumstances would be far from us. But Lord, sometimes we expect your blessings in particular ways. And Lord, as we just sit with that, as we deal with that, as we recognize that our expectations sometimes aren't great. Lord, our expectations sometimes aren't being met. Would you help fix our eyes on Jesus? Would you help to show us, to reveal to us that you are the God who is faithful, who never leaves, who never forsakes, who actually keeps his promises. Lord, in so many ways, we are people who do not keep our promises. We are people who do not maintain the standards that you call us to maintain. We don't even maintain the things that we say we're going to do. But Lord, you showed your faithfulness to us in Jesus. Lord, would you help us to trust Jesus more in the middle of whatever circumstances come our way? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.